The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Morgan Leppert was just 15 years old when she ran away from home with Toby Lowry, her 22-year-old boyfriend. As authorities searched for Morgan and Toby, they made a haunting discovery. One of the last calls to Morgan's cell phone came from a home belonging to an elderly disabled man who was found beaten to death. I'm Vinnie Politan, and this week's Court TV podcast dives deeper into this case with an audio edition of our original series, Accomplice to Murder with Vinnie Politan. Was Toby telling the truth when he claimed Morgan manipulated him into committing this horrific crime? Or was Toby the one really calling the shots? This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Morgan Leppard was just 14 and lived in this Florida neighborhood when she met Toby Lowry, a much older man in his 20s with a criminal record. But despite her young age, it would be Morgan that police would cast as the mastermind behind a murderous attack during a robbery gone horribly wrong. Case took place in Putnam County, Florida, which is north central Florida. It's very rural, uh, kind of farmland. It's off the St. Johns River. Morgan was born January 12th, 93. She was born in West Palm. We lived on five acres. She was always happy, loved animals, horses, swimming. I've always called her my sunshine. She was delightful, just a sweet, happy little girl. Always loved being outside with the animals and bugs. And <laughs> she had a lot of cousins to play with. She was the baby. She's a very sweet girl. She always has been. So there was never any concerns about, uh-oh, we're worried about Morgan. Oh, no, she's at it again. She never got in trouble for anything. I mean, I don't think she ever got in trouble in school. That year, Morgan was 14, turning 15, and while most girls her age would be starting their freshman year of high school, Morgan was at home and being homeschooled by her mother. So her experience was not one that is typical for many girls who are physically in school all day long. That's when Morgan met Toby Lowry. Her little boyfriend that she had been seeing since the eighth grade. He was a friend of a cousin or something like that. And she met him in October of 2007. And she broke it off with her boyfriend and Toby started coming around. And he was telling me how her stepfather had kicked him out of the house and his mother was dying of cancer and didn't have any place to stay. I shouldn't have but I told her he could stay in one of the other bedrooms until he found some place else to go. He spent Thanksgiving with us and Christmas. I met Toby on one holiday, I believe it was Thanksgiving. Seemed like a nice young man, looked very young. They told us he was 16 or 17. A few months after Toby moved in, Morgan's mother, Jerry, made a disturbing discovery. 
I happened to find a piece of paper with his name on it, and I looked at it, and it spoke of probation. And I thought that he was like 16, 17, and he was really like 21 or 22 at that time and was a convicted felon. It was disturbing to think that he was that old messing around with, she would have been 14. So I told him he had to go, stay away from Morgan, don't come back. But the two continued to see each other behind Jerry's back. And then one evening, Morgan failed to return home. I knew that he hung out at a campground and I went there trying to find her. And I couldn't find her, but I found a trailer that they said that he stayed in. And when I went in, that's when I found her phone where it had been crushed with a hammer. I called the sheriff's department. The police paid a visit to Toby's parents who said that the two had stopped by and asked for a place to stay, but his parents had refused to take them in. Not gonna say they were being uncooperative, but just didn't want a whole lot to do with it. Toby had maybe burned some bridges there with the parents. A lot of us in law enforcement knew who Toby was. Some drug issues, burglary and thefts involved with Toby. The fact that she was with an, an older male, that was a concern for me. There's some, some questions there, whether it was a sexual relationship or what was going on there, which would be a, a, another crime in itself. From the time that Morgan went missing, 24-7 of just wondering if she was all right, if she was dead, if she, you know, was being raped. So many things go through your head. Like, you know, are they going to try and find her? Are they going to put, like, a message out? Oh, what about an Amber Alert, you know? The police didn't believe, however, that the couple could have gone far. Morgan and Toby didn't have their own transportation. Toby had always been in this area and, and lived in this area, and so felt that they were somewhere close. The Putnam County Sheriff's notified local law enforcement to be on the lookout for the two. They also retrieved a record of the calls made to Morgan's cell phone. In reviewing the cell phone records, I had noticed that a, a number from the Melrose area had called Morgan's phone. It belonged to a Mr. James Stewart, who had lived on Cherry Lane. Harold and another detective drove to Mr. Stewart's house to determine why he had called Morgan's phone. There was no car there. The house was locked up. Left my card on the door, and no one came through the door. Noticed that there was a handicap placard that was laying in the grass there. At the time, didn't think nothing more than, hey, the people who live here just aren't home. Morgan's family began to fear the worst. I mean, day after day after day went by, and there was there was nothing. I didn't understand why. There was no Amber Alert, so it wasn't, you know, known that she was missing. I mean, I was calling some of the news stations to see what I could do to get her picture on the news. I don't know what you have to do, but they, they wouldn't do anything to help me. Then, on May 1st, Detective Harrell heard a call on the police radio that caught his attention. I overheard on the radio that some officers were dispatched out to Mr. Stewart's home, which ultimately led to the discovery of Mr. Stewart's body inside the home. Coming up, 
police are met with a horrifying scene. A disabled man beaten, kicked, and suffocated to death inside his home. After the family of a man named James Stewart called police worried about his well-being, officers showed up here to check up on him. One officer knew something else about Mr. Stewart's residence, which made the call even more urgent. One of the last numbers to have called Morgan's cell phone was Mr. Stewart's home phone. James Stewart lived on a secluded wooded property near the small town of Melrose. He was born without hands. He had an appendage on one hand and, and nothing on the other, but was able to do anything he wanted to do. Was an excellent gardener. He took care of his family. He liked his cats. He was a very determined person, very self-sufficient, amazingly so, and very caring. When Detective Harrell arrived at Stewart's residence, he found a murder investigation in full swing. Uh, Mr. Stewart's body has been found deceased inside the home. It was a gruesome scene. He was beaten, he was suffocated, and uh, stabbed as well. Detective Harrell immediately told investigators about the call to Morgan's phone. Was then asked by our administration to go and find Miss Leopard. And they told me that there was a person that was found dead. That was such a sickening feeling because I didn't know if she was dead, too. We had enough information because we had a vehicle that Morgan and Toby were possibly in, Mr. Stewart's vehicle that was missing. We're able to do an Amber Alert. A nationwide Amber Alert put this Florida teen in the hands of authorities, cutting short a cross-country road trip with her adult boyfriend. Anytime a crime like this targets an elder, somebody who is especially vulnerable, that's something that does gain a lot more attention and certainly adds to the heinous nature of the crime. A police officer in El Paso had noticed Mr. Stewart's truck on the side of the road with three occupants. After the officer radioed in to confirm the identity of Morgan and Toby, the two were taken into custody for questioning. At that point, some of the investigators with our office, uh, Detective John Merchant, and some investigators with the state attorney's office flew out to Texas and interviewed Toby and, and Morgan. The police questioned the couple separately. Initially, their suspicions were focused on Toby Lowry. It's obviously our first thought process is that, you know, this older person is someone who has manipulated this young child into running away and being with them. Initially interviewed as a victim, Morgan admitted that she had run away voluntarily to be with Toby. Uh, like you said, your mom said, well, you're going to be with him anyways. And you said, well, I'll just run away. Pretty much, I just left. She didn't like the fact that I was with him. And I said, I was going to be with him no matter what. And I ended up leaving. Yeah, but I wanted to get out. Uh, so I got out of Florida. Yeah, you got out of Florida. <laughs> you got out of Florida, right? You got out of Florida and then some. In my first time running away, I got pretty far. But she denied knowing anything about James Stewart or where the truck came from. Is that his friend's truck that he's in, the y'all were in? I really have no idea. You ever seen him in it before? Mm -mm. You didn't ask him who it was? I really didn't care at the moment. I was just glad to get out of here. They first talked to Morgan when she said she wasn't involved in anything and she didn't know anything about the murder. 
Then I think ultimately they went and talked to Toby when he made his first confession. Toby was pretty forthcoming with everything um, as far as what happened. I, I can only assume when he made that decision to speak in, in El Paso, Texas on May 4th to investigate a Robert Hardwick of our office that he was going to tell the whole story and he did. It is graphic. He describes acts that are, that are incredibly violent. In his telling of what happened inside Stewart's house, the 22-year-old blamed the 15-year-old Morgan for making him do it. She was like, baby, go in here and kill his ass. I'm like, I don't know. And I was like, man, no, man, I can't, I, no, I can't do this. I asked her, I was like, is this what you really want? She's like, yeah. Once we do this, we can take the truck and get to the state. Toby even described what he said was Morgan's role in the murder. I walked in the other section of the house. For a minute, and I hear. I turn around, Morgan's beating the out of him. Just wait. Literally, I can't believe him. Don't do this. I swore in my mind I wouldn't. I wouldn't confess this. Nobody. But I never can understand how somebody can, after being told that they don't have to say anything to law enforcement going out and laying out exactly what took place. Armed with Toby's graphic confession blaming Morgan for instigating the murder, investigators returned to question Morgan in the juvenile facility where she was being held. I had found an attorney in Jacksonville who sent via fax to question her as a victim only. But when investigators returned to question Morgan, her attorney was nowhere to be found. If your client is a suspect in a homicide, you don't let them talk to them without you being present. Even then, I wouldn't let them talk to them until I've spoken to them first. The attorney never met her. We were all kind of dumbfounded that a lawyer is hired in a case. Law enforcement wants to go to them, and they don't bother to show up. Once investigators told her that Toby had confessed to murdering Stewart, Morgan's story dramatically shifted. How many times did you stab him with a knife? I poked him. I didn't, he didn't even go through, for God's sake. Toby shoved his own way through. I didn't even shove my other way through. The most I did was when I had the pipes in my hands, and that was only hitting him in the face like two or three times. Meanwhile, Leopard's family had gotten wind that Morgan was being interrogated as a suspect. Assistant Public Defender in El Paso saw the detective interviewing Morgan and found out that the attorney had given permission and called Morgan's mother to say no attorney should be allowing their client to, to be interviewed by a detective on a homicide case without them being present. When they told me about it, it's my understanding from talking to the family that my turn be read because I couldn't believe it. Chris Smith was an attorney that we had found in Orlando. 
He was very confident, you know, that everything would be all right. Smith was hopeful he could convince the prosecution that they were focusing on the wrong person. The prosecutors obviously took a very hard line toward her and felt that she was more in control and involved in this. I've had a lot of contact with her. I've spent a lot of time with her. She is very unsophisticated, very immature even for a young age. Never even crossed my mind that this case was ever going to get a trial because of her age and because I knew the co-defendant had to be the one that perpetrated the homicide. Then he learned that the district attorney was preparing to charge Morgan with first-degree murder as an adult. I attempted to try to get the judge to release her, uh, which was denied. And then very soon thereafter, adult charges were filed on her. So there was only one penalty for first-degree murder, and that was life imprisonment. Smith flew to El Paso, still hoping to convince the district attorney to let Morgan plead to a lesser offense. I just did everything I could to try to convince them that she deserved mercy, that they had misjudged her. She was not the one who was controlling the situation that had taken place. But Morgan's second statement had hardened the prosecution against her. It certainly seemed to me that Morgan was probably more of the manipulator in this relationship and had maybe manipulated Toby into doing some of the things that, that were done. And then the story was picked up by the national media. When we look at cases of kids who kill, and particularly girls who kill, there's always a lot of media coverage. And the reason is because it's, an, it's unusual. Then you've got the drama, she's with a boyfriend, and they're on the run. And then you have the sad reality that the victim is a older, disabled man. They said that she was the mastermind behind Toby killing this man, that he did everything she wanted him to do. I think they called her the blue-eyed devil. Because Morgan had been questioned as a juvenile with no lawyer present, Smith attempted to get her second statement thrown out. They were seeking death on Toby. After I filed the motion to suppress, they cut a deal with him to testify against her in exchange they waived the death penalty and he received a punishment of life in prison. I have no idea why they made the offer. They had indicated that they were going to seek the death penalty. We were very happy when that offer was made and I know Mr. Lowry was too. She is so very young and could potentially have a productive life out there. We just felt that bottom line, when you look at the, the violence that, that she engaged in, that she physically with her own hands engaged in, you just have to treat her uh, in, in the same as other offenders. I was a homicide prosecutor here in Orlando. You take an oath and it says to do justice, it doesn't say do vengeance. And I felt like they were just doing vengeance. but. I could not get the prosecutors to reduce the charge against her. So it was clear that we were going to have to go to trial. After her boyfriend, Toby Lowry, took a deal to avoid the death penalty, Morgan Leopard's trial began here at the courthouse in Flagler County. She was only 15, but in the eyes of the prosecution, Morgan had transformed from the victim of a potential sexual predator into the manipulative mastermind behind a gruesome murder. She helped Toby do it. She scouted the place out for Toby, and then when they were in there, she, she tried to kill him. I mean, it comes down to that. Because of the media attention surrounding the murder, 
The defense asked the judge for a change of venue. I tried to get the judge to transfer it to Volusia County. He granted the motion, but he transferred it to Flagler County. The main population center of Flagler County is an area called Palm Coast, mostly retirement type, but are generally conservative, prosecution-oriented jurors. Ultimately, Morgan's fate would be decided by only six jurors. In Florida, if it's not a capital case, it's a six-person jury. So that's right in the rules of criminal procedure. That's that's standard. That's that's not unusual. What is unusual is having a six-person jury in a first-degree murder case. Yes, sir, I would, of course, renew my objection to only allowing a six-member jury to deliberate this case and assert that that denies my client her right to a 12-person jury under the rules of criminal procedure under the Florida United States Constitution. Okay, so noted. That's why I filed a motion objecting to that, which was denied. I've never heard of something like that, to have six men decide the fate of her life. The prosecution wasted no time in portraying Morgan as the driving force behind Stewart's murder. The defendant, Morgan Leppert, ran away from home to be with her boyfriend, Toby Lowry. They were sleeping in the woods near Mr. Stewart's home. There was a mattress on the ground that they were sleeping on. Her normal boyfriend had any transportation, they had no money, and they had no prospect of getting any until they came across James Stewart. On April the 25th of 2008, the defendant chose to execute a plan to case Mr. Stewart's home. In other words, she concocted a ruse to gain access into Mr. Stewart's home to find out what stuff he had that they could steal. The prosecution alleged that Morgan knocked on Stewart's door asking for help. Mr. Stewart came to the door. She asked him. She used the phone to call her mom. To prove the adage that no good deed goes unpunished, Mr. Stewart let the defendant in. She didn't call her mom. She didn't call the police. Instead, prosecutors said that Morgan called a number she knew no one would answer, her own phone, the one that lay crushed in Toby's trailer. She continued her mission to size up Mr. Stewart and the size of the contents of his home. Prosecutors claimed that later that day, the two entered Stewart's home through an unlocked side door. Toby arming himself with a knife he found inside and Morgan with two metal pipes. Toby Lowry barged into the room, pointed the knife at Mr. Stewart and demanded the keys to his truck. The defendant chose to stand by his side with those metal pipes in her hand as an added show of force. When Stewart resisted, Toby went berserk. He punched Stewart in the face, breaking his glasses and knocking him to the ground. He then proceeded to stomp on Stewart's throat before taking the knife and stabbing him repeatedly in the chest. The evidence is not going to simply show that Toby Lowry acted alone, that Morgan Leopard in this case was simply an innocent bystander. The prosecution alleged that Morgan willfully took part in the attack hitting Stewart several times with a pipe and attempting to stab him as well, then getting a plastic bag from the kitchen that Toby ultimately used to suffocate and kill Mr. Stewart. The evidence will show that Morgan Leppard 
found the keys that they came into that house to get, and she took those keys. The evidence is going to show that Morgan Leffert found the victim's wallet in his shorts pockets and found over $100, which she took. According to the prosecution, the entire course of events was driven by the 15-year-old Morgan, who manipulated a naive Toby to help her get out of the state. Now, the defendant had the means to accomplish her desire to get out of Florida. And so Toby Lowry and Morgan Leppard got into that truck and they headed toward Gainesville. Toby Lowry is, in some ways, he's, he's very personable. He's, I think he's very impulsive, obviously, from the facts of this crime. And he was somebody very much in, in love with Morgan Leppard. After leaving Stewart's house, Morgan and Toby stopped at a Love's gas station to refuel before picking up a hitchhiker who traveled with them for several days before they were stopped by police in Texas. When you listen to uh, Mr. Bruckner, our, our, our uh, uh, traveling type person from, from that they picked up in Georgia, and he was so helpful to lay out the entire relationship. Did they appear to be definitely a couple in love in your eyes? Yes, I would say. I mean, they were they were a couple. Yeah, there's no questions about that. What did you observe as far as the way the defendant treated Toby Lowry? She smacked him several times while we were in the truck, while he was driving down the road. Um, she seemed to be in control of him more than anything. What was her mood during this four to five days? Usually she was pretty happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we see that interaction, that they are literally boyfriend and girlfriend, not captor to captive. And again, she has access to the phone. Anytime in the world she could pick up the phone, leave. It's that simple. Coming up, the defense faces a long road ahead. The phrase that I would use is one my grandfather used to use. I did feel like I was pushing a Cadillac up a hill with a rope. With the prosecution seeking to convict Morgan of first-degree murder, her lawyer Chris Smith was the only person standing between the 15-year-old and life in prison without parole. I was very nervous going to trial because I'm always nervous. And also I'm representing this child in case where the evidence was, because of her statement, overwhelming. There were things working in her favor. There was her age. She was under the age of consent. It's not reasonable to expect a child of her age, her lack of education, the fact that not only was she supposed to be in ninth grade, she, she didn't even make it through eighth grade. There is a reason we don't allow our children to make certain decisions, the reason that we seek to protect them from making decisions. Smith argued that if Morgan was too young to consent to sex with Toby, a legal adult, she was too young to be held responsible for what happened while in his care. You get information that a 15-year-old child has run away from home. Does that person have the ability to consent to do that act? I'm going to check this to relevance at this point. What's relevance? The relevance is explaining that a 15-year-old does not have the ability to consent to have sex and certainly doesn't have the ability to consent to run away from home with a 22-year-old man under Florida law. He's a trained law enforcement officer, and he can render that opinion. The statutes do not speak to her ability to consent. What it says is that the consent doesn't matter. 
there's this great hypocrisy. We say we don't want to let children who are under a certain age make decisions. We recognize they're immature. We have to protect them. We have these laws where you could be prosecuted for having sex with a 15-year-old, even if you're a 16-year-old boyfriend, and make those people a sex offender. And then when you get an exact situation where she should be protected, where she does get involved, and the facts become obviously out bad, uh, and a horrendous situation takes place, then suddenly she's not worthy of being protected anymore. Toby Lowry, Smith argued, was the adult who was responsible for what happened next. Common sense tells you and everything you've heard from the evidence in the case shows you that there's no way this offense would have been committed by Morgan Leppard without Toby Lowry. She didn't know the house. She didn't know Melrose. She didn't have the violent capabilities. But Toby could have committed this offense without her. And as such, her participation was unnecessary. There was no indication that Morgan had ever been in trouble or associated with criminal activity until she became involved with Toby Lowry. And while the attack on Mr. Stewart was brutal, there was little evidence that Morgan's alleged participation in that attack contributed directly to his death. I mean, he killed Mr. Stewart. She didn't. There was nothing that they were presenting that really proved anything against Morgan. DNA, fingerprints, things like that. There was just nothing that, that seemed like they really had proof of. Although DNA testing showed that the blood on the murder weapons was from Mr. Stewart, police somehow failed to dust them for fingerprints. Referring to Exhibit 11 in evidence, this, this knife, you took two DNA swabs from this, correct? Correct. One would be of the blood to determine, if you could, whose blood was on there, correct? That's correct. One would be probably the handle to see if there was any DNA left on the handle of the person who may have wielded the knife? Yes, sir. And it would also, the handle would also, or knife itself, would also be processed for prints after the DNA testing, correct? It was not submitted for prints, no, sir. Okay, so just the, just the DNA just swabs? Just the DNA, yes, sir. Smith also pushed back on the idea that Morgan could have just walked away. Well, he was physically superior to her. Uh, she just witnessed him commit an incredibly violent crime and uh, knew what he was capable of doing. Why would you anger somebody like that? Why would you try to run away from them? Having not walked in her shoes, having not been a 15-year-old girl living out in the woods for four days with a man she purportedly thought she loved, it's so easy for them to come back 15 months later and say, oh, that's not what we would have done. We would have just turned around and walked right out of there. There was one strong piece of evidence that supported Smith's argument that Toby was the driving force behind Mr. Stewart's death. Toby's own words laying out his violent attack. I hit him. I, he fell backwards and shattered the glass of the glasses like into his eye. He knew what he did. He'd already seen his discovery by the time he gave his deposition. You admit what you can't deny and deny what you can. And that's what he was doing. He's out here in the country. Ain't nobody gonna hear shit. I was like, baby, what, what the do you wanna do? She was like, honestly? I'm like, yeah, honestly. She's like, I say we go up in that house while he's in there. Do 
So the 22-year-old grown man is listening to the 4'11", 89-pound, 15-year-old girl. But the jury never got to see that video. The only way his interview could have been played in court was if Toby had been called as a witness. Ultimately, the prosecution decided against calling Toby to the stand. Well, I was surprised they didn't call him because they made the deal with him. So if you really felt like he was that important, uh, why didn't you call him as a witness? I think uh, both sides were going back and forth on that issue. Um, and, and well, you know what, the case is still pending. I probably don't want to get into that. I regret not calling him. I, I don't know that it would have made a bit of difference. It wouldn't have taken away that interview Morgan gave in El Paso. 15-year-old Morgan Leppert was facing the rest of her life in prison after implicating herself in the murder of James Stewart. Now, the prosecution was preparing to play the incriminating audio of that admission to the jury. Through it all, Morgan's supporters remained optimistic. Nobody said there was anything that Morgan did had anything to do with the man dying. I remember meeting with the family after the first day of the trial and talking to them. They were somewhat upbeat. And I explained to them that tomorrow's not going to be a good day because I knew the statement was coming. The prosecution first called Chris Middleton, the detective who interviewed Morgan on May 3rd and May 5th. Can you please state your full name and occupation for us? I'm Christopher Middleton. I'm an investigator assigned to the state attorney's office. Okay. What location did you speak with, with the defendant? This was at the El Paso uh, Police Department. Okay. What time was this? It was uh, around 10 o'clock, 10.30 in the evening, El Paso time. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the May 3rd video um, taken in El Paso, Texas, we see Morgan giggly, playful, um, certainly acting as a child. One, it's unique in that she's just killed somebody and has no concern in her mind for that. But the minute he leaves, she drops that demeanor. She gets a sullen look on her face like, oh my gosh, I'm caught. After Toby confessed and police interviewed Morgan a second time, they alleged that her true personality came through. Did you again speak to Ms. Lepper? On May 5th, yes sir, I did. Okay. Was her demeanor or behavior changed at all in between the two interviews? She came off as an adult. It went from a cute, young, innocent schoolgirl to a person who was fully aware of what was going on. The prosecution played the audio recording of Morgan's second interview to a completely silent courtroom. I poked her. I didn't, he didn't even go through, for God's sake. He always shoved his own way through. I didn't even shove my other way through. The most I did was when I had the pipes in my hands, and that was only hitting him in the face like two or three times. Why, Morgan? Why, why did this happen? I don't know. I told him I wanted to get out. He said he was going to do it. But it sounds cold. It sounds chilling. You could see that that did not sit well with the jurors' faces. I couldn't tell you exactly what it, what their faces were, but I've seen enough jurors' reactions to think evidence that comes in. They were offensive statements because he didn't deserve it. 
As Smith felt the tide turning against Morgan, the pressure of trying to save the 15-year-old from dying behind bars became overwhelming. Uh, I started having severe headaches. And my blood pressure was 194 over 120, and I was about to stroke out. And I had to get injections to complete the trial because I was so upset. But if the prosecution was going to rely on Morgan's statement to convict her, then Smith was going to use that same statement in a last-ditch effort to save her. She'd struck Mr. Stewart with this aluminum curtain rod, indicates in her statement that that was done at the direction of Mr. Lowry, correct? Yes. And at one point she indicated in the interview that Toby had directed her to take the bag and put it over Mr. Stewart's head and suffocate him, correct? Yes. But she refused to do it. Yes. Yeah, Toby told me to do it. I said, no, I am not doing that. So he grabbed the bag and... Did you go, to, did you go get the bag for him? Because I had gotten one to get some change, I think, and I had an extra one, and I had dropped it on the floor. Why did I just take the truck without having to kill Mr. Stewart? Without killing Mr. Stewart? Uh, we weren't thinking. You figured if we did take it, you didn't want the guy seeing his face because we were already in the house. When you asked her, were you forced to, to go along with it? Her response was, I listened to what Toby said. Toby, Toby told me to, and I did what he said. Yes. Toby did it all. I beside me, and Toby did all of it. You did it with Pine, right? Yeah, but Toby, Toby made sure he was dead before we left. Finally, Smith reminded the jury how Morgan's second statement had been obtained in the first place. At no time at the beginning of that interview did you indicate to her that you were inquiring of her as to what possible involvement she might have had in a homicide, a burglary, a robbery, or a grand theft auto, correct? No, no sir, I did not. Uh, in fact, repeatedly throughout the interview, she's having conversations with you about wanting to go home. Yes. You're telling her you're going to take her home. Correct. correct? You're going to fly her home personally. Yes, sir. Correct. And she's telling you she wants to get back home, get to see her mother, get back to her, her room. Yes, sir. Sleep in her bed. Yes, sir. Okay. I was merely just trying to focus on the fact that she was under this man's control. She was not the one running the show. After deliberating for just a few hours... The jury returned with the verdict. Okay, Madam Court reporter, show the jury is now seated. Uh, members of the jury, have you uh, reached the verdict? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, would you please hand the verdict form to the bailiff? <clears throat> would the uh, defendant please rise for the verdict? State of Florida versus Morgan Amanda Leppert, defendant. Case number 2008. 1171 CF. Verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Morgan Amanda Leppert, as follows. As to count one, guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the indictment. As to count two, guilty of burglary with assault or battery as charged in the indictment. As to count three, 
guilty as charged in the indictment of robbery with a deadly weapon, so say we all, dated at Bunnell, Fogler County, Florida, this 13th day of August, 2009. I didn't believe it at first, but I remember being on my knees. I remember falling. I remember being in Chris's arms. I remember looking back at my mom saying, I'm sorry. When they said Morgan was guilty, you just don't, you don't believe it, that you're hearing right. For them to think what they thought of her, it blows your mind. I'm obviously very disappointed. I'm always disappointed anytime I get a verdict like that. Morgan has several legal issues. This case is not over. Uh, we have the sentencing coming up, and then, of course, we'll file an appeal. But Florida law left little doubt about Morgan's sentence. State of Florida then removing the death sentence left only one option for the judge, and that was to sentence her to life without parole if found guilty. It's the most heartbreaking case of my career. It's still one that sticks with me more than any other. Anytime you lose a case and your client gets sentenced to life, you second guess everything you did during the trial. Morgan Leppard has now spent half of her life behind bars. Her mother, Jerry, still visits her as much as possible and refuses to give up hope that one day her daughter will go free. I almost feel like, you know, because of my decisions and relationships and bad choices, maybe that's why Morgan was looking for love in the wrong place. So the guilt never goes away. I wake up thinking about her. I go to bed thinking about her. My backbone is my mom. People would criticize her of being a bad mother. She never was. <laughs> it was me being young and stupid, wanting to run away with a boy. When Morgan was found guilty, there was no hope she'd ever be released from prison. But that changed in 2012. After Morgan was sentenced, the U.S. Supreme Court did make a determination that a juvenile couldn't receive life imprisonment without some type of access to be released. At her first resentencing hearing, the judge again sentenced Morgan to life, but with a key difference. The judge did not sentence her to life without parole. She has the opportunity for a review of her sentence. So that's a big thing um, because it, it leaves open hope. You know, I hope if she gets out as soon as, as she can possibly legally get released. You know, she committed a crime. There were consequences. And I think these consequences were too severe. Media from the attorney when there is a hearing, if I'm around, I'm going. Whenever it is, I'll be there, assuming I'm on the planet. I wish I could change it all. I was young and dumb and manipulated by a grown man. If I could take it all back, I would. Um, that they hope one day they forgive me. I just hope they find it in their hearts to forgive me. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Accomplice to Murder with Vinnie Politan. If you want to see more of our original series, they are available to stream for free on the Court TV website. Just check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, you can see me every night on my other show, 8 p.m. Eastern, Closing Arguments. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. 
Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.